Welcome, everyone. So, are you tired of the same old ways of seeing things? Well, you've come to the right place. Here, we cut through the world of surface appearances and look for the light that's rare in the depths. Here, we dive into the dark waters where strange creatures move. Here, we're free to be that foolish knight who lunges at windmills and who lights up the world with his magical vision. It's all too much, says George Harrison. That's true, but all the more reason to jump into it and intoxicate yourself with life's infinite profusion. After all, you don't discover new lands by sticking close to the shore, do you? This is the wisdom of. And coming up, the one and only Plato's Republic. got some great news. I am going Hollywood. I just sold my fantastic film script to a, to a jowly, hard-drinking, cigar-smoking movie executive who I'm sure has nothing but my best interests and the art of filmmaking foremost in his mind. We already have a director attached, M. Night Shyamalan. It's a dystopian tale set in the not-so-distant future where we the people are ruled over by a supposedly wise and benevolent king, where we have enforced communal love pits, an attachment to one's own children is prohibited, and the composing of of base poetry is the greatest crime of all. Those rebellious enough to, I don't know, write some dirty limericks or take their son on a trip to the old fishing hole They are sent away to re-education academies to learn the way. This was M. Knight's idea for the ending. We had this idea that where we would switch to present time, and in present time, we see our, our king. Now, I guess this is a bit of a spoiler, but we see our king as a youth, the king that ruled over the dystopian future with an iron fist, and the camera slowly pulls back and we see that he is reading. The camera then zooms in on the title, and it's Plato's Republic. The demographically sought-after teen audience gasps in horror at the revelation. Yeah, this, uh, this uh, young would-be ruler of yours, that he's been reading The Republic, isn't that far off, actually. I mean, you're right. There are definitely some dystopian aspects to The Republic, that's for sure. Like, uh, first and foremost, of course, the censoring of all dirty limericks. Okay, but before we get back to your, to your great movie idea, first, and as usual, a brief summary. Okay, so Plato was a, was a Greek philosopher, born sometime around 428 BC. Along with his, um, his teacher, Socrates, and his student, Aristotle, he's considered to be one of the greatest philosophers in history. Now, we don't know much about Plato's personal life during his early years. What we do know, though, is that as a young man, probably in his early 20s, he was eager to go into politics. Disappointed, however, with the kind of people who held political control 
and um, confronted with growing corruption all around him, and, uh, by the way, bearing unfortunate witness to Socrates' execution, a result of this corruption, he was left completely disillusioned. But moved by these events, and determined to keep the memory and thoughts of his teacher alive, Plato soon began to compose his philosophical dialogues, dialogues in which he makes Socrates the central character and voice. Later in his life, Plato also founded the the Academy, which was the European world's first university or place of higher learning. Let's be honest, like everyone who has gone Hollywood like myself, my prestige dystopian thriller was only attempt to work my way into the big time to make some real big money, and we know what that means, superhero movies. At least that's what my studio executive buddy told me that I wanted. The problem is, I don't have any more ideas. Now, M. Knight, he pulled me aside and he told me, that is not a problem at all. You can just do the same thing over and over again. So, I'm delving back into slash stealing ideas from Plato's Republic again. And I think I've got it. The Ring of Invisibility. What a great superpower. I haven't exactly finished reading this part of the book yet, so please tell me that Socrates tells this awesome superhero origin story that has an easy-to-adapt three-act structure with plenty of merchandising opportunities. Yeah, you know what? M. Knight is probably right. You are probably better off going with the, um, with the superhero and the Ring of Invisibility theme. I mean, much more merch potential there than in your original idea of the, of the brooding dystopian ruler. Okay, well, I know that you certainly haven't read it, but actually, you are touching on something very important with this Ring of Invisibility thing. And it's something I, I want to get back to in a bit. Because it's actually pretty central to Plato's message in the Republic. Okay, but first, let me um, back up a bit and try to give some context. Okay, so even though the Republic is an enormously wide-ranging work of philosophy, touching upon, among very many other topics the origins of government, educational reform, and even a a theory of aesthetics. Actually, Plato's central and overarching aim in this great dialogue is this. It's to try to show that a good or ethical person is better off or happier than a bad or an unjust person. Okay, so how does Plato, in this dialogue, start this off? Well, Basically, he gets a a character in there, Glaucon, who's talking to Socrates, to express the the very popular view that morality isn't really something that's good in itself, but rather that it's only something that one must do or abide by to avoid harm or punishment or to win a good reputation. Now, the thing is, is that Glaucon himself doesn't believe this. He actually believes that morality or justice is something good in itself. But his problem is that he just can't give um, a very persuasive defense of it. And so, well, what does he do? Well, he asks the great Socrates for help. He calls on him to try to show that being moral or just is to be valued for its own sake and not only for its consequences. Now, 
What Glaucon means by goodness being valued for its own sake is that being good is something valued and pursued for its um, intrinsic experience. That is, for the, for the happiness it brings the good person. Okay, but now it's pretty obvious that this isn't very intuitive or convincing for most people. Why? Well, because after all, as Glaucon says, most people think that being good or just is in itself something really, well, something burdensome, that, that it holds them back, that it's, in fact, not to their advantage, and it prevents them from attaining happiness. In fact, most people, he says, only do what is ethical, because they don't have the power to do what they really want to do and get away with it. In other words, and here's the, the really important point, if they knew that they could get away with absolutely anything they wanted to do, they would do it, however unjust or unethical it might be. Now, remember that Glaucon himself doesn't believe this. But to really drive home the point to Socrates, to make sure that he really sees the problem that he's being asked to tackle, Glaucon recounts the story of Gyges, a story about a, a simple shepherd living under the rule of the king of Lydia. So, the story goes that one day, while um, tending to his sheep, there was an earthquake which broke open the, the ground beside him. Well, he was curious about it. So, Gyges climbed down the, the chasm that had formed there. When he, when he got to the bottom, he discovered a corpse with nothing on it except a gold ring on its finger. So, well, he, he slipped it off, he, he stuck it in his pocket, and he climbed back out. Now, later on that evening, when there was the, uh, the usual meeting of the, of the shepherds to make the, the monthly report to the king about the, about the flocks, Gyges came, wearing the ring. And um, sitting with the other shepherds, Gyges noticed that as he turned the face of the ring to himself, he became invisible. And when he turned it away from him, he became visible again. Now, when he realized the great power he now had, what do you think happened? Well, yeah, you, you probably guessed it. Basically, he, he committed adultery with the, the king's wife. He, he killed the king, and then he took over the kingdom. Okay, now, obviously part of Glaucon's point here is that most of us, given the opportunity, if we had this, um, this ring of invisibility, would act in a similar way to Gyges. That's to say, we wouldn't be very ethical at all. Again, why would we consider ever being just or ethical? when we could just get everything we want, when we could always do what is seemingly to our own advantage without ever suffering the repercussions of our actions. I mean, think about it. Wouldn't we be um, forfeiting the greatest potential happiness for ourselves if we had this opportunity and, and didn't exploit it like, like Gyges? So this is part of the challenge that Glaucon wants Socrates to meet. Again, he wants him to try to show that we're in fact wrong to think that we'd be better off living this way. That's to say, better off living like Gyges with his ring of invisibility doing whatever we wanted. 
In fact, you know what? If you think uh, Glaucon can't drive the point home even more, he does. So what he does is he asks Socrates to consider which of the following two people he thinks is happier. A, um, a thoroughly bad person with an absolute reputation for goodness. So, for example, Gyges, if he went on to build a, a sterling reputation for goodness without ever being suspected of his gross injustices. Or B, a thoroughly good person with an absolute reputation for badness. Now, Glaucon thinks it's, it's pretty obvious what answer most people will give. Most people will judge that the, that the bad person who's getting away with all sorts of unethical actions, but all the while having a reputation for being good, is better off or, or happier than the just person. Indeed, how could they not? since most people recognize that the good person, because of his terrible reputation, will just end up being hurt and punished by others. Now, what do you think? Don't most people have a point here? I mean, isn't the the bad person with a good reputation going to be happier here? And isn't the the good person with with a bad reputation going to be absolutely miserable? Well, not according to Socrates. So what Plato has Socrates try to do in the Republic is to take up Glaucon's challenge by having him try to show that it's actually never in our interest to be immoral or unjust, that, that being good by itself always benefits us, and that, and that the good person is always happier than the bad one. So ultimately, it's, it's going to turn out for Socrates that Gyges appearances withstanding, can never be better off or happier than a good person, even if the goodness of that person remains hidden or is marred by a bad reputation. In other words, basically what Socrates goes on to show is that just being good all by itself always benefits us and guarantees our happiness, and that, conversely, it's never in our interests to be immoral or unjust. Okay, folks, uh, bad news. I just got fired from Hollywood. Turns out they thought I was pitching something else, uh, not Plato, but Play-Doh, the movie. They were super excited about building a cinematic universe based on colorful clay. But when I told them I didn't have, you know, any of the rights and I didn't mean Plato, that the intellectual property was just sitting out there, they fired me and they're going to do it without me. Sucks. My first attempt at the big time, if I'm honest, it kind of did make me a bit happy though. I really felt happy when things were going great, but if I'm honest, it was, it was all too contingent, too dependent. And even when I was rolling, I was only thinking about what's next, what's next, what's next. So turns out I'm going to have some time on my hands. So I guess I can actually read this stupid book, uh, This Republic, and just maybe it has something to say about happiness in a more stable way, a more harmonious way, a kind of happiness that maybe could last. Oh, so, so they decided to go with uh, Plato, the movie. Sorry about that. Live and learn, I guess. But you know what? Not all's lost. I mean, throughout this ordeal, 
it seems that you've, uh, you've kept your integrity and your sense of right and wrong. And as we've seen, Socrates would say that as long as you got that, you pretty much have everything. Most importantly, um, genuine happiness. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, we know that that's what Socrates wants to argue for. But how does he do it? Well, let's spend some time on that now. Okay, but before we get to it, we should first say something about how it is Socrates in the Republic goes on to conceive of, well, how he conceives of the human soul. Because um, that's super important. Okay, so what is the soul exactly, according to Socrates? Well, we might say that very generally, that the soul, for him, is who we are. It's our um, essence. It's our personality or our character. So it's that which um, thinks, desires, and experiences emotions. Actually, you know, Socrates is made to say that there's a, a clear plurality to the soul. Specifically, our soul is um, tripartite, he thinks. That's to say, it consists of um, three parts. It consists of the, the rational part, the desiring part, and the emotional part. Now, how does Socrates characterize each of these? Well, he says that the rational part in the soul includes the, the power of reasoning. Importantly, it's the part of the soul that's um, concerned with the, the good of the person as a whole, and uh, with the pursuit of knowledge and truth. Now, the desiring part of the soul? Well, that's basically the, the seat of the, of the base bodily desires, such as those for, for eating, drinking, and sex. And um, lastly, the emotional part. Well, that consists primarily of emotions having to do with things like um, anger, ambition, shame, and uh, honor. Okay, now, having said all of this, Socrates thinks that there's an, there's an optimal or, or ideal state of the soul. One that's marked by, well, a kind of harmony. Essentially, it's when each part of the soul performs its particular function. When um, everything does what it's supposed to do. And basically, this is when the reasoning part is in charge and establishes the goals of a person's life. And then when the desires and emotions aren't running wild all over the place, but conform with what reason determines. Okay, now, but this is another really important point Socrates makes. He says that this harmonious soul is, well, it's a, it's a just soul. In other words, he equates internal psychological harmony with justice. He thinks that Psychic harmony makes for a just or a good person. Or maybe another way of putting this is that what Socrates is saying is that it's, um, it's human psychology in its best condition that provides the foundation for moral goodness. Okay, now, the next thing that Socrates says is crucial, especially if we remember what it is Glaucon wanted Socrates to try to show. Remember that he wanted him to give a, a persuasive account of how it is that being good is always in our best interests, and being bad never is. He wanted him to show how Gyges, appearances withstanding, isn't actually happy when he lives the immoral life despite never being punished for it. Okay, so 
what is this crucial move that Socrates makes? Well, what he does is he goes on to give an analogy between justice, or being good, and health. He says that justice is the, the natural order or, or relationship between the parts of the soul, in the same way as health is the natural order or relationship between the parts of the body. And Socrates' reason for, for drawing this analogy is to get us to see, in the most uh, palpable way, what the nature of injustice in the soul looks like. I mean, if justice in the soul is optimal health, then injustice in the soul is the worst disease, right? That's to say, injustice, like disease, is a corruption of the body's nature. It's a, it's a disruption of the natural order. Now, Socrates' point here is that this injustice simply isn't a good condition of the soul. And so, it's just not a very desirable state to be in. Certainly, most of us who have experienced um, intense inner conflict and, and confusion will agree that our, our lives would be much more desirable without it. On the other hand, what Socrates says is that if the various parts in us are, are functioning harmoniously, if our soul is healthy, then we'll find ourselves in, in the most desirable state. In a word, we'll be happy. And let's be honest, it isn't that difficult to see why this is so. I mean, when we're physically unhealthy or, or sick, our mind is foggy, our body is weak and, and hindered, and we feel bothered and uncomfortable. Consequently, our actions are limited. And we find that we can't really do what we'd like to do. But, on the other hand, when we have a healthy body, our mood is, is marked by a kind of quiescence. We have our full range of capacities and we can do what we want to do. With um, health, then, comes freedom in our actions and real control and direction over our lives. Well, that's the body. Here's the thing. Socrates argues that much the same thing can be said for the just, harmonious, or healthy soul. That is, when the three parts of our soul are, are properly balanced, when each is performing its proper function, then our actions will flow from, from sound judgment. We won't be plagued and, and buffeted around by overpowering desires and emotions. Nor, consequently, Will we suffer the, the usual anxieties and, and fears wrought up by them? No, in, in this condition, we'll have full control over ourselves and our actions. And so, we'll be doing what we genuinely want to be doing. With a, with a just soul, then, comes freedom, clarity of thought, self-control, a deep sense of satisfaction, and a feeling of calm or equanimity. In other words, Justice in the soul promotes happiness. That is, the person whose soul is in that state will be happy. So, what do you know? It turns out that being good is in our best interests after all. I mean, another way of making this point 
is just by looking at how bad it would be for someone to have a soul dominated by the maddest and most depraved desires, where reason and reflection have become enslaved. Maybe like, um, Jaiji's soul. Actually, it's interesting. Socrates likens this enslaved, unjust soul to a tyrannized state. That's to say, just like a, like a city that's under a tyranny does least what it wants to do, so too a soul that's under a tyranny will least do what it really wants. Again, the idea here is that when the reasoning part of our soul is in control, we are free and autonomous, making decisions for ourselves and in the best interests of our life as a whole. On the other hand, when our desires have, have taken control over the whole of our soul, then we're enslaved, being compelled to act in ways that we do not choose, leaving us feeling regretful and lost. Well, okay, so here's Socrates' conclusion then. It's this. Though Gyges didn't know it, immorality was never in his best interests. So Socrates' ultimate point is that an immoral person, despite external appearances that may suggest otherwise, has an unhealthy or unharmonious soul, and so is actually the furthest from being happy as one can be. At the end of the day, the only thing that's going to give us the extended peace of mind characteristic of deep, genuine happiness is being a morally good person. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Zor by the Greek. Thank you.